Talk Real Estate with Sharon McNamara, sponsored by Boston Connect Real Estate Services. Hi, I'm Sharon McNamara, and you are listening to Talk Real Estate Roundtable. Let me share a little bit about my background before we get started. I am the broker owner of Boston Connect Real Estate, a boutique real estate firm that is home to over 30 real estate sales and marketing consultants who service home buyers and home sellers throughout Boston, the South Shore, the South Coast, and Cape Cod. Our firm takes pride in assisting our clients in the next chapter of their lives by taking a holistic approach to their real estate endeavors. We believe that every move should be a moving experience. Every week, my real estate team member, Mary Baker, and I, along with the director of Boston Connect Real Estate, Melissa Wallace, provide you with our unique marketing approach to selling homes and share with you our expertise in navigating the home buying process. We like to mix it up sometimes, so not only will you hear our perspective on real estate topics, but you will hear the expert thoughts and opinions of some of our real estate agents at Boston Connect Real Estate and the preferred professionals that we trust. Be part of our roundtable. If you have any questions during the show, please call 781-837-4900. We'd love to talk real estate. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you listen to podcasts at Talk Real Estate Roundtable. If you would like a one-on-one consultation with me and my team or one of the dedicated agents at Boston Connect Real Estate to discuss your real estate needs, you can connect with us at bostonconnect.com or 781-826-8000. Now, sit back, relax, take good notes, and let's talk real estate. And good morning to all my South Shore neighbors. This is Sharon McNamara, and you are, of course, listening to Talk Real Estate Roundtable. I am calling in today via Zoom from beautiful Eggertown Harbor. Just finishing up my vacation here. My 4th of July vacation is coming to an end today. Um, and I am joined by my favorite brother-in-law. And I can say that without worrying if the other ones are listening. <laughs> um, I have Michael McNamara joining me uh, this morning from McNamara Financial. And of course, we just finished up two hours on McNamara on money. Michael, that two hours flew by. <laughs> You know, we only got to like five of the twenty-seven things we wanted to talk about. <laughs> and, and oh yeah, I'm at a I'm at a rectangular table, not a round table, Sharon. But I, I guess it'll have to do. Okay. Yeah, I will definitely have to get you. Uh, we'll have to get a round table in there. I'll talk to Ed about that. There you go. So, um, there you go. My in-home studio, my studio at my office. Actually, we have a, a round table, so right. it works out perfectly. I also have Mark McNamara joining me this morning, so um, he morning. is here. And um, just for our listeners um, on WATD, you can also follow us if you aren't uh, listening on WATD. You can also follow us and stream live on Facebook on all the Connect pages. Uh, Pembroke Connect, Marshfield Connect, we're on all of them this morning. So you can follow us along there. We have Tim in studio. Hello, Tim. Hello, hello. Good morning, Sharon, again. Hello. Oh, I am so happy to have you. And we also will have a caller calling in. I, don't know I wish I could be yet. with you on the boat. It looks great. <laughs> well, I will have to get you and Jimmy out here one time, right? Yes, and, yes, me and Joel, yeah. Joel, Joel, Joel. Hey, you got okay. the J. It's all right. Yeah. I got the J. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about your um, your email address. Oh yes, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, do we have a, does that caller? Yes, in? Ben. Ben is standing by. He's ready. All right. Perfect. So we have Ben Cody who's joining us from Styles Law Office in Marshfield, and um, he is fantastic. Michael, we recently had him in the office going over trusts and wills and everything with all of our agents. Um, and I know we had some questions from the previous half hour that we were on. So I don't know, Michael, do you want to ask? We'll get Ben on the air. Ben, are you there? 
I am. Good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning, Ben. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks. Already, uh, Sharon. I just, um, I just had. This is just a topic, and not general necessarily a question, but a topic. Uh, uh, is that uh, th there are folks uh, that that I work with uh, that that put homes in different kinds of trusts, uh, and one one of the most uh, common reasons for doing that uh, is that. As I currently understand it, watch my qualifications here, as I currently understand it, there are some legal strategies that still work in the state of Massachusetts where uh, you may be able to protect your home uh, from nursing home insurance costs if you do certain things and follow certain rules. And, and one of those things involves tucking your home into something called an irrevocable trust. Uh, I, I am agnostic about that. I'm a certified financial planner, and we just take a look at people's circumstances and situations and things. Uh, but but I guess I'll start the my comments by saying that uh, you can solve one problem and create another, uh, and, and that uh, you know, I, 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 for some folks, doing that strategy works out just fine, and for some folks, it comes back and either blows up or bites you uh, because of some things you didn't think about in advance. And so, so Ben, the, the, I guess the the point I want to try to get across is that when folks do something like that they they need to do some serious thinking about the consequences on the other side and and uh, generically speaking I, I, I mean, my 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 take on it is that if you're going to put uh, a real estate property in an irrevocable trust uh, in an attempt to uh, basically avoid long-term care costs I, I'm perfectly fine with that if if you do not need any equity in your home, to live on or tap in retirement, uh, that that's number one. Uh, and then, yes, the rules are that you can buy and sell homes within that trust. So if you tuck that home into a trust and decide to sell it and go buy another one, you can do that. Uh, but if there happens to be some money left over in that trust from, from doing that, uh, your access to that money uh, is limited or might be a surprise. And, and, that, and that's, so, so there's a couple of downsides to doing that kind of a thing that, that uh, I don't think people think enough about. Uh, and I just wanted to get maybe Ben's take on that or some comments. Uh, not good, not bad, but just something to think about sort of a thing. Did that, did yeah, I absolutely. You okay with that? how I explained that? Or does that, that make sense or from my point of view? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh. So I think, there, I think you put the issue out on the table very thoughtfully. And an irrevocable trust, just like anything else with estate planning, is a tool in the toolbox. And so you only want to take it out when it's absolutely right for the, the person that you're trying to help. So an irrevocable trust, just like you said, it helps us protect against nursing home liens. Uh, and the reason behind that is you're basically taking the property out of your own name. And as long as you get through the five-year look-back period, MassHealth won't count it as an asset, and they won't try and recover the money that they've spent on your behalf by looking at the value of the house. But I would say of the of 10 people that come into my office and say, I'm interested in doing some Medicaid planning or mass health planning, I'd say maybe nine of them leave my office saying, oh, I don't want to have an irrevocable trust. Good. And the reason is <laughs> they don't, they're not thinking at the beginning about the downside. Yeah. So 
the, the upside is I can preserve my estate for my loved ones. I can make sure that they have an inheritance. But when I tell them that, just like you said, there's limited access to equity in the home, uh, you lose control. So our position is it's best to have a third party as a trustee um, so that MassHealth can't say, well, you really had access to it, and therefore it's a countable asset. Um, it makes it really difficult to take out a loan. Uh, really, the only type of loan that you could take out would be a reverse mortgage. And even then, you have to make sure that the trust is set up correctly. So uh, the example I give, let's say you want to put on an addition, you want to redo your kitchen, and you need to take out a home equity line. As soon as it goes into that irrevocable trust, that option really stops. It also requires a lot of trust, uh, to use a confusing term, since we're talking about trust. It takes the common sense term of trust with the people that are involved, uh, because you really need to rely on your trustees, the ultimate beneficiaries, which are generally the adult children, to really do what you want to do. And lastly, I would say there's a whole body of case law that makes it very clear uh, there are no take backsies, uh, to put it kind of bluntly. Uh, <laughs> I once love it's it. in the irrevocable yeah. trust, yeah. it's not coming out. Um, so unless somebody's willing to break the trust and uh, go against the terms of the document, uh, you really have no access to that property, whether you want the money, whether you want to sell it, or if you want to take control back. Uh, ben, how do you how do you set up a trust so that you can put a reverse mortgage on there? Is my understanding that that would be either impossible or really difficult to do? So could you help? How's that work? Yeah, sure. So there is specific language. It's um, reverse mortgage enabling language. So if you are setting up an irrevocable trust, you just want to make sure that whoever's helping you, uh, generally an attorney, that they're going to put that language in there so that when you, if you decide in the future to get a reverse mortgage, uh, you don't learn the hard way that that equity is no longer available. Okay, so so if so if that's legal, okay, so A, I didn't know that, thank you very much. B, but, but that doesn't mean a bank will lend you money on a trust that they don't like the name of to begin with. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. So okay. it's only, it's only uh, reverse mortgages. If you went to an ordinary local bank or a yep. national mortgage lender, they're going to say, sorry, you're not the beneficiary. You're not the trustee. Uh, we're not going to lend you the money. Okay. I, I'm, I'm sorry. So, so my question would be, so if you have that provision in the trust, okay, is there, uh, you know, if you go to a a reverse mortgage person, is it pretty much uh, uh, okay you're going to do that? Or do you get, are there some reverse mortgages that decline because it's a trust and, and it's not an individual person? In my experience, uh, the reverse mortgage companies generally all follow the same guidelines. They're okay. all backed by the federal yep. government. Yep. And so as long as it has the language that's okay uh, under those guidelines, uh, generally you're okay. But Every underwriter is different. We're dealing with people at these companies. So right. if their opinion yeah. says this okay. language isn't sufficient, yeah. uh, we're in a tough spot. And just okay. like it sounds, since we can't revoke it, we yeah. can't amend the trust, so we can't fix it. Got it. Got it. Okay. You, you know, if... if uh uh, if you could maybe ship off to Sharon, I'd, l I'd love to see the wording in that. That's something I just learned today, so thank you for that. Uh, because I've had some some difficulty before with that sort of a thing. Okay, cool. cool. Uh, Absolutely. Could you also explain, and I, I, I do this at the like the almost like fourth grade level just for myself, uh, but if somebody sells their home, okay, for uh, $800,000, and actually do buy a less expensive one for, for $400,000, okay, and pretend there's no tax consequences. So that there's there's $400,000 in that trust, okay? Mm -hmm. what, what, what are the, what's the accessibility or what, how, what are the rules on how that money is available or works for clients? Could you, could you explain that? 
Sure. So I want to preface all this by saying that the rules are the rules as of July of 2022, and they're always changing. Yep. So whether it's the statute that's changing, uh, there's really two statutory regimes. There's the federal law, there's the state law, um, and the state law is interpreted by our Supreme Judicial Court. So we've had cases that come down that clarify how these rules work. Uh, And so something I say now might not be true in five years, which makes it really hard for us to plan. And so that's why I usually take a pretty conservative approach with drafting. But as of right now, uh, the it is possible for the homeowner or the person that's granting the property to the trust to remain as trustee. I take the conservative approach. Let's just make sure that they're not the trustee so that there's no question. Yeah. The other thing that the rules currently allow is for income of the trust to be paid to uh, the people that are settling the trust or the people that are putting the house into it. So what that means is if you have $400,000 and you're able to put it into an investment vehicle that pays or that has income, in theory, that money would be available to pay to the settler or the person that created the trust. But not the capital. The principal, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. the principal cannot be accessed, and that's one of the requirements for this trust to be effective to actually prevent nursing home liens. Sure. And, and, and my understanding of that is there's a strict definition of income. It's dividends and interest. It's not capital appreciation or gains. Is that the way you interpret that? That is the way I interpret it. So it would have to be, you'd probably have to have a very specific investment strategy where you're trying to maximize those types of income. Yeah. So, so, so I just wanted to, uh, that good, that's the way I understood it. So I just wanted to put that kind of in perspective. So that $400,000, you know, a a simple example would be, well, uh, you know, I want, I want that capital. You can't have it. Well, I want the income. Well, okay. uh, Right, right now, uh, a 10 year treasury is somewhere about 3%. Okay, you got four hundred thousand dollars. Well, so so, Mister and Mrs. Client, you just kind of need to know that three percent of four hundred thousand dollars is twelve thousand dollars. So, so your only access is about twelve thousand dollars a year of dividends and/or interest in that in that portfolio. Uh, and, and you know, I I've met more than a few people, unfortunately, in my life that uh, that didn't understand that or that that math didn't work for them. You've got all this equity, okay, that uh, that you had before you put it in the trust and you can't use it for for your retirement. So, so yeah, okay, th- thank you. I, it, it's just, I've seen the bad side of that, so I get a little a, a little concerned. But I, I, thank you for the reverse mortgage thing. I still assume it's lender-specific, but now I have to talk to a couple of my reverse mortgage friends to get a, some more of a translation. But that, that's good to know. Thank you. Uh, and there's one other yeah. thing, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's important, because sometimes people will say, well, let's save some money, let's make it easy. I just want to gift my house to my adult children. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's Generally, that, there's two reasons why you don't want to do that. Uh, the first one is uh, control. So there's no the, a trust is a contract. So by having a written trust, it sets the terms by which the adult children can be trustees and how they can manage the property. But the much more important thing to think about is actually capital gains, uh, because as I'm sure you know uh, when somebody passes away with a property in their own name or even in their own irrevocable trust if it's set up correctly, there's a step up in basis. But if somebody makes a gift during their lifetime, the recipient of that gift receives that person's basis. So what you could end up with is a huge capital gains bill, especially if the person bought their their house 
uh, many decades ago. Uh, and that's another thing that I often see where people are surprised that they now have a $150,000, $250,000 tax bill uh, because of the way that this was all set up. Yeah, that's what you, that's that, thank you for that. I, I, I forgot to, to put that in my notes. And, and yeah, thank you. So, so that basically the inheritors uh, have a tax on that that they would not have had if other things happened differently, basically. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Sharon, you got you, you got any questions about this? Is this is the kind of the in the weed stuff that <laughs> that we stumble yeah. across from time to time? I, as I'm sitting here, I am just so grateful that I have both of you in my life, so <laughs> you can you know help me with these decisions or help me and Mark with these decisions. But I know Ben, you were at the office recently, you know, doing you know giving us a presentation on all of this. What? Are there other benefits to the irrevocable trust other than, you know, hiding it from the nursing homes, so to say? Yeah, so the irrevocable trust is really, you can think of it like a credit shelter trust, or you can think of it for credit protection. So if you had a person with a particular, particularly risky profession, or they're likely to have a lawsuit, or it, it, it potentially shields uh, person from creditors, but we don't really come across that very often because you don't know if you're going to be sued in the future. Um, so generally speaking, the primary reason that we would set this up is for uh, Medicaid planning. Yeah, Sh Sharon, I, th I think, and Ben, please correct me, but I think uh, another, by the way, th so there aren't too many reasons, Sharon, is the, sh <laughs> is the short yeah. story, but uh, another one might be that if you have a special needs child and, and uh, th th there's there's some worry about either making some of those, you know, sometimes you qualify for government programs and if you have too much money, you can't get this, that, or the other thing. So, so sometimes irrevocable trusts are used, uh, A, for financial purposes and B, for care purposes of folks who may have some special needs. Uh, can you help me with that, Ben? Or? Sure. Yeah. So irrevocable trust, uh, so a trust that is revocable becomes irrevocable at some point in the future, generally speaking. So let's say the parents of a, a child that has special needs, they set up a revocable trust and they remain the trustees for their lifetime. When the parents pass away, the trust becomes irrevocable and that trust would then provide supplemental assets for uh, the disabled child um, so long as it doesn't disqualify them from government benefits. Um, so it's a little bit unusual to set it up as an irrevocable trust during um, to be, the, to, to begin with lifetime. Yeah, got it. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. But it becomes irrevocable. So okay. a, a lot of the trust, even if we set it up as a, a living trust during a uh, a settler's lifetime, uh, generally speaking, they will become irrevocable at some point. Got it. Got it. How about how about real estate trusts? While while we got you on board here, explain why people would uh, put a property in a real estate price and the uh, the advantages of that, if you would. Sure. Yeah, Can I so stop for just uh, one sec, though, oh, sure. Michael? Oh, oh, oh. I just want to ask Ben one question, sticking with the irrevocable trust. I, I mean, there are no predictions, right? And at what age do we consider this? It isn't like you really start thinking about, you know, when your parents are going to be in, you know, need this full-time assistance or nursing facilities and everything. I mean, is there an age where people should start thinking about this? Uh, I think so, and I would... I would actually ask the question a little bit differently. So how do we avoid the need for an irrevocable trust? And part of it would be, let's think about long-term care insurance. Uh, because my consultation is a really easy one. When I say, do you have long-term care insurance? They say yes, and it has the qualifying coverage amount. I then say, well, we don't need to worry about uh, nursing home clawback of this equity. Uh, because essentially, the state is trying to incentivize you 
to self-insure. So if somebody's in their 30s or 40s, they're getting their financial affairs in order, they're planning for their retirement, part of that could be a very reasonably priced long-term care insurance policy. But I would say 99% of people, uh, unfortunately, don't think about that until it's too late and the premiums would be prohibitively expensive. So then I think about it's really a, uh, an equation or a, a formula with a few different variables. The first one is how old is the person? The average nursing home entrance age in Massachusetts is approximately 88 years old. So if we have a five year look back period, we want to say early 80s is really the point at which if you're completely average and that's when you enter, that's kind of the last possible date that you're going to be able to put this into trust. Um, so it's a sliding scale. Somebody that's in their 60s, probably too early. Somebody in their 90s, probably too late. The other thing to look at is what other assets does the person have? If they're sitting on an estate that's worth three or four million dollars, uh, it's unlikely that we're ever going to get to the real estate. Um, just looking at the cost of care, um, they would have to live in a nursing home for decades. Uh, and so they wouldn't be a good candidate. Uh, and as we were talking about before, if they need the money to actually fund their retirement, uh, we need to make sure that we're not locking away those assets. So it's uh, availability of funds, how old the person is, uh, and also um, how, what their health outlook is like. Um, so sometimes people say, I'm in my 60s, but I know I'm not, my health is poor. I know I'm going to need nursing home care in the next 10 to 15 years. They might be a good candidate. Uh, while we're still on this subject, before we get to the real estate thing, Sharon, I really, really like this guy. He makes sense, and he speaks English for a lawyer. I want you I to know, know. Like this. He's this is so really good. Seriously, Ben, I've, I've never met you before, but you speak the language, and people can understand it. Mo most of the folks who visit attorneys that that come in my office, they they can't explain anything that ha that happened at a meeting. So, so thank you, by the way. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 and, uh, <laughs> Michael, just so you know, yeah. um, Ben and Alyssa do know each other as well. Okay. Oh, cool. So, shows what I know. Uh, but anyway, so mm -hmm. so Sharon, so you know, we, we, we're we're certified financial planners. We manage money. Well, the most important thing we do is we, we help people develop plans. And sure, the money's important, but but nowhere near as important as making some pretty smart decisions about the rest of your life. But anyway, uh, w when mm -hmm. we have the, when we talk to folks about the risk, okay, of going in a nursing home, it, we we figure it's our job to mention it to them pretty frequently, uh, certainly if they're in at their retirement age, okay, uh, or, or at least in their mid-50s to late-50s, given the circumstances. You know, and, and the solutions are very easy. I, I, either you have enough money to pay for it and not worry about it. That, where are we in Massachusetts? About a buck, a buck 40 for a year in, in a nursing home, Ben? What, what's the latest numbers? <laughs> yeah, on? that's about right. Yeah. yeah, we're looking at twelve to 14000 a month. Yeah. Uh, and that's for a single room with skilled care around the clock. Obviously, the prices vary. Yeah, so 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 either, you know, so here are the choices, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Klein. Either you can pay for it out of your pocket, uh, you can buy insurance, okay, uh, you can do an irrevocable trust and or you can risk it and, and that that that's the deal uh given the circumstances un, un, unfortunately uh okay not many people are wealthy enough to to kind of take a sniff at one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year for two or three or four or five years and say i can afford it okay uh and by the way the the people who can say that would be pretty dumb not to spend six or eight thousand dollars for a long-term care insurance policy to to cover that uh, for the rest of their lives. But that, but I digress. Okay, <laughs> uh, the the people uh, who 
most of America can cannot afford to to write a check for three or four or five thousand dollars for an individual life insurance, uh, uh, long term care policy, or more. Ben, I'm sure you've seen the prices these days, given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so unfortunately, it's a a good chunk of America, a huge chunk of America, can't afford to go out and buy the insurance because it's just too darn expensive. Uh, and so those are the folks that that are eligible to maybe think about an irrevocable trust. But those those are also the folks that probably many of them need the equity in their home to be okay, and, and it's probably not a good decision to give away your money in life early anyway sort of a thing. So it's it's just such a tough discussion, Ben, because most people can't think about being able to deal with that sensibly sort of a thing. So so is, is that helpful, Sharon? I mean, good good question. But, yeah. But yeah, and, yeah, and I do think, I mean, it's, you know, for, from my standpoint, I generally get the conversation about we have to sell the house. I'm working with somebody right now and it's like you don't think of it until you're there almost. Yeah, yeah. I almost I, it's almost always too late for everybody that I'm meeting and yeah. when they're going to do this. Yeah. So that and, and I do know firsthand, by the way, that it's five hundred dollars a day to be in a nursing home in a local area on yeah. the South Shore. Yeah. So that's two of them. I mean that's that's what, a hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year? I mean the average person doesn't have that. Yep. So um, you know, Ben, while we were talking earlier, I was actually on Michael's show earlier from eight until 10. And we were talking about, uh, one part of our topic was multi-generational living. And, uh, we oh. were talking about oh, people yeah. who put in-laws, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, you know, they'll, someone will sell the house and then they decide to build an in-law on their current home. Can you tell us the pros and cons of that? Because me and Michael are pretty clear on what we know the pros and cons are. But from a legal standpoint, we'd love to hear your point of view. Sure. It's funny you mentioned this. I actually was working with a client earlier this week where um, the parents actually infused some of the money to put an addition on with the in-law. So one of the things that we run into from the legal side of things is how do we manage the split of equity between, they're really partners, they become business partners, the parents and the adult children. Um, so how do you manage that? Uh, you can have a partnership agreement, you can have uh, a whole host of ways to handle it. You can actually split up the ownership. Uh, some of the other legal questions, who pays the expenses? So uh, now that you're sharing electricity and heat, how does that get split equitably? Um, so there's kind of the money side of things that uh, lawyers tend to worry about. Um, and then there's also the, the whole zoning piece. So just stepping into the real estate realm, uh, we want to make sure that this is something that can be permitted under local code. Uh, so some towns are very restrictive with how these things can be set up. Um, so it's definitely a little bit more involved than a lot of people think. And when they call us, they're surprised to learn some of the steps that they'll actually have to go through. Uh, but Ben, do you get involved at all with uh, inheritance issues and uh, sons and daughters and siblings that might come up with a short end of that? Or any any uh, wisdom or thoughts about that? Yeah, that's actually a great point. So one of the things, one of the questions I often ask, because usually the parents will come in with their children and they'll tell me these grand plans and I say, okay, who else is in your family and how are they going to feel about it? Uh, because what often happens is, especially if... Uh, 
often the parents will say, the people that I'm moving in with, I want them to get our equity in the house when we pass away. And depending on the size of their estate, that could be a pretty considerable portion, uh, and it can really drive a wedge between the siblings that are going to survive the parents. Um, so we really want to be careful that we're not creating a situation that is emotionally difficult and potentially legally difficult, uh, because sometimes those siblings uh, might be angry enough or the estate might be large enough uh, where they're enticed to actually go to court and say, mom and dad didn't know what they were doing, this was the result of fraud or duress, we want to try and claw back some of this money. Yeah, and, and Sharon, the the time to have that discussion, by the way, I don't know what percentage uh, Ben's experience, but a, a good chunk of parents who do that don't bother to tell the other ones, uh, if ever. Uh, and, and, you know, my advice is tell them tomorrow and let's have the arguments and stuff out of the way before you come down to the end of the line there sort of a thing. What, what's your take on that, Ben? Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> I think the only the only time that I tell parents that it's a good idea to leave things as a surprise <laughs> is if everything is going to be split equally. Yeah. So if, if we're saying, okay, everyone gets a third and th that's the surprise, it's generally something people can swallow. Yep. Uh, but if one sibling is going to get a disproportionate share, I think it's better to talk about it now because sometimes that sibling can come forward, say their piece, feel okay about it, um, and they don't feel as slighted when the time comes for the money to actually be uh, divvied up. Um, so I, I agree. Let's get it out on the table. Let's have the tough conversation. Uh, and generally, that would work better. Yeah, it sure is a tough conversation, too. It's, a, it's, a, it's unbelievable. Yeah, Sharon, I, I've been doing this for 42 years. Uh, most of the time, Kids fight about money one way or another, sort of a thing with inheritances, and, and, and you know. So yeah, good. Thank, thank you, Ben. Yeah, it's yeah. Th that's kind of a, just a, a that the legal part. Of so do you have people sign contracts, or how, how do you deal with that? I mean, it, it seems like it's like, oh, this is a family. Do we need to do this or not? Uh, well, generally, when I have somebody come in, I'll say, well, we should put together a partnership agreement. Partnership They'll agreement. say, oh, we don't need that. We're family. I've, I've literally known them my entire life. Yep. And I say, well, do you want me to introduce you to my clients that are suing family members? <laughs> uh, and then generally, that uh, will, they'll say, okay, let's put something simple together. Um, because even if you're not going to have a lawsuit, it's nice to say, okay, I know that the kids are going to take care of the electricity and I'm going to take care of the heat, and then we don't have to worry about it. Um, so having the conversation up front, doing the planning, that is huge, and it saves a lot of heartache in the future. Yeah, I, I can see this, Sharon. So listen, Grandma, you can't have the heat above 70 and the air conditioning <laughs> <laughs> above 84. No. Uh -huh. yeah, does, right. does that go in the agreement? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can put anything you want that's in the an agreement. Elder law, that's an elder law lawsuit. Turn that heat down. <laughs> put a blanket on in the bed, an extra one. Yeah. Well, you can put anything you want in a contract, right, Ben? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, as long as it's not against public policy, yeah. um, then generally that's true. And, and by the way, so most families come around to being okay with that, and not, now that's clear, and I assume everybody feels better, correct? <laughs> Well, right, and generally what I've found is when I, when if there is a sibling that's, uh, that has an issue with it, I say, all right, so are you going to take care of mom and dad? Are they going to move into your house? Are you going to help f uh, fund nursing home care if that comes to the to pass? And generally they'll say, you know what, this is a pretty good deal, and then they'll, they'll drop their issue. Um, so that's another piece to think about. The person that's getting this influx, they're actually also giving a service, or they're paying something for it. Uh, it might not be in dollars, but it's going to, it's, it costs something to have your parents move in. 
Yeah, and Sharon, mm -hmm. sometimes that, that other sibling is uh, 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 the, the wayward son who lives in California that shows up with a pink oh. golf, shirt, a golf shirt and says, I, I'm owed this <laughs> sort of a thing. There's a few of those out there, believe me. Well, I'm dealing, I am literally dealing with something like that. There you that's go. Holding up a sale of a property because of a, a long lost brother that hasn't been to you know Massachusetts in over 25 years yeah. that lives in California, oddly. Yeah. So it, it definitely happens. And like I said, I mean, we sort of see that side of things when it's almost too late. But I, I'm loving this conversation, Ben. I'm always so intrigued. And by trying to plan appropriately, and Michael, when Alyssa and I used to do uh, Financially Secure Women, and we had those events, we were always talking about, I think as adults, we want to leave a legacy and not a burden. And by having all of these documents and everything in line is really the first step on making sure that you're doing that. And I'll, I'll tell you, I know this firsthand too. You might have all the siblings that are getting together and they're saying, Oh, I'll help. I'll help. I'll help. I 100% know that that does not happen for all the people when something goes wrong and all these people are like, don't worry, I'll help you. I can do this. I can do that. Those people have lives and their life carries on. And it's sort of like a back burner thought process where they are going to come and say, oh, yeah, I'll definitely help. So I think having the conversation up front makes a lot of sense because it, I see a lot of fighting afterwards. Yeah. It's it's always the daughter that's geographically closest to the parents. That's that that's the person we're talking about who's taking care of them. That's for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Sharon, OK, to ask them about real estate trust. Or do you have any other things you want to talk about before we get there? Um, no, you can carry yeah. on with what, well, you know, um, you know, I don't know where we Well, uh, you know, my point is, people say, should I put my real estate in a trust? And I'd just like to have Ben go through the pluses and minuses of doing that, that's all. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Ben. Yeah, so a trust, there's a, a few different types of trust. So there's uh, what we would call a true trust, and then there's a nominee trust. So it used to be pretty common to have a nominee trust, sometimes called a realty trust. And the unusual part of that trust is that the beneficiary calls the shots. So the beneficiaries tell the trustee what to do, and the trustee is really just there to manage and follow the beneficiary's instructions. Um, th that has some title issues to it. Uh, the beneficiary certificate isn't recorded. Uh, we tend to find some problems, and they've somewhat fallen out of favor, at least in my experience. Okay. Um, the true trust, so a living trust, sometimes they're uh, uh, just called a revocable trust. Those are more common, and those have a good estate planning piece to them. Uh, and like Sharon was talking about, really what it does is it helps plan now to avoid things in the future make it easy for the kids. So the biggest benefit, I think, is avoiding probate. So the process of probate is going to court, submitting a will, uh, having the court determine who the devisees are or who the heirs are of the estate, who's going to be in charge of making decisions. Generally speaking, that's an expensive process, and it's by definition very time-consuming. Uh, to do a formal probate, we're looking at probably two to three months to get appointed. Uh, so in that time, you might the estate or uh, uh, it, the estate's going to be paying real estate taxes, insurance, uh, uh, mortgage interest is going to be incurred. There could be additional expenses with repairs. So by having it in a trust, we can avoid that entire process. And generally speaking, a house could be sold or rented out immediately. So the trust avoids that administrative headache on the back end. The other big advantage is for a married couple, we can use the uh, trust to actually plan for estate tax mitigation. So by having the property in a trust and having it properly funded, we can actually 
uh, reduce and sometimes eliminate the Massachusetts estate taxes, which could be a considerable savings in the tens of thousands of dollars range. Yeah, Sharon, I, I, I don't own my property uh, it, locally here. I'm at Justin's mercy whether I can stay there or not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's okay. Yeah. To, to, to that point, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah they're, they're, that, that works for a lot of people these days, right? Because it's, it's not too hard to have a, a million dollars in change uh, upon the demise of a second spouse these days for lots of folks in Massachusetts, right, Ben? Or? Right. Well, I mean, if real estate has doubled in yeah. the last few years, uh, people that live in a modest house yeah. now that's a large portion of their of their estate and uh, I would say a majority of the people I talk to are millionaires and they don't even know it yeah, um, yeah. so a, wow. and I, I congratulate them shake their hand and then I say okay now what <laughs> uh, because we we want to make sure that they're not going to leave their kids with a big tax bill that's yeah. sometimes hard to fund yeah. uh, because if they don't have the cash to actually pay that bill then they're forced to sell the property so yeah. the family home that they want to keep in the the family for generations uh, they could be in a situation where they actually have to sell it because they don't have the money to pay the tax bill. Yeah, it's occurred to me. Uh, it occurred to me in the last year and a half or so with appreciation in uh, stock market prices st- still way ahead and real estate. Yeah, more and more people are that wealthy. So I'm kind of on a, a mission to w- work through my client base and make sure that everybody knows that if they have a Massachusetts estate tax and what and how much it would be, and then if they want to do anything about it, sort of a thing. You're right. They're, they're, I think there are going to be lots of people surprised upon uh, settlements uh, in, in coming just because of where that is. So, yeah, mm-hmm. cool, cool thing to do. Sharon, the, the trusts are wicked confusing. That would be my professional okay. commentary. But, boy, they sure make sense uh, for certain situations, and assuming people understand them, they, they can be wonderful things, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, going back to, as we were talking about earlier, is having the correct team in place for you and making sure, again, Styles Law, you know, I have been using Mark and his crew forever and a day, and uh, they're just so, they're wonderful there, and they're just full of knowledge. So I'll say, when all of this comes up, I always say to people, again, you put it as one of your topics maybe we would hit upon today, and it's like, all right, I know my lane. My lane is real estate. His lane is definitely, Ben specifically, um, is definitely everything to do with the state planning and, you know, putting everything in line the correct way. Ben, can you just hit upon a little bit the process when I go, sometimes I'll go and people don't have everything in line the whole process of getting the license to sell and why sometimes that can be so complicated and why we really shouldn't, in my opinion, shouldn't have the house on the market until we know that we have that or it's near getting to us. Uh, uh, Yeah, sure. Um, So essentially, there's a couple ways that you can sell real estate out of a trust. Uh, One is called the power of sale under the will. So if somebody's been proactive, they've set up a will, they didn't do a trust, but they have a will, um, the will actually says, my personal representative, we used to call them executors, now they're personal representatives, they have the authority to sell real estate without permission of the court. That's kind of the ideal situation, uh, because we don't need anything else from the court. If we don't have that, we need to get something called a license to sell. Uh, and just like it sounds, it gives somebody permission to sell real estate. We generally will need the offer in order to actually petition for that license, because we need to know what the offer amount is. Um, so. Uh, I think it's okay to list as long as the estate's been open. I I tend to agree. If the estate's not open, we need to put the brakes on the process. We need to make sure that somebody is appointed as personal representative. And what's really important from a real estate perspective is to actually put into the either the listing, well, 
preferably in the listing, but definitely in the offer, that the seller's obligations are subject to the court's approval of the license to sell. Uh, because if, for instance, one of the heirs or the devisees under the will, if they come out of the woodwork and say, well, I object, uh, now you're in a tough position because you can't get the license to sell. Maybe you can, but it's going to take you six months to a year. But your contract says that you have to close in 60 days and there's no out. And now you're subject to a lawsuit from that seller. So one of the things I encourage is if you do have a seller with uh, an estate that's, if the seller is an estate, reach out to the attorney early so that they can give you some pointers on what kind of language you can put in there to make sure that you're not going to have a situation where now you're in two lawsuits and just eating up the value of the estate. Ben, what's the time frame to get that license? Is it pretty short, I hope, or? Uh, well, it can be. So if everyone agrees and they sign what's called an assent, yeah. um, then it is generally a matter of a week or two. It's however long it takes the court to process the paperwork. Okay. Um, if the if we don't have the assents or if there are, sometimes we'll have errors that are minors, uh, which happens a surprising amount of time, yeah. we actually have to get, or we have to um, publish in the newspaper uh, and we have to submit a citation, or we have a citation submitted to us, we have to publish and give notice to all the interested parties, and that, by definition, takes at least 30 days, uh, and generally will take closer to 45 or 60, depending on the court's backlog. Um, so we do want to build in time. We want to make sure that we have, as, it's generally a good idea to have everyone on the same page, so if we can be open and transparent with the devisees and the wills, so all the, the people that are going to inherit the money, if we can keep them updated and say, hey, we're going to sell the house, this is the sale price, um, Will you agree to this, and will you sign the paperwork so that we can make it go quickly? Um, by having that open conversation, it generally saves a lot of time and money. Thank you. Appreciate and one of the th reasons why I bring that that question up, too, is look at the way that the interest rates are rising, 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 and people are getting bumped out of what they can afford. If the listing agent isn't well prepared or started that process of knowing that they are in the process of getting that license to sell, then it could take a lot longer, but now you could potentially have a buyer who can't potentially wait longer than maybe the 60 days, or you might end up as the seller, okay, if it's going to be additional 30 days, so now we're at a 90-day uh, closing, now what about their rate? Are you paying the difference for their rate walk? So there are a lot of moving pieces in what you have to be concerned about, and that's why I say, and I love about putting it in the MLS you know, as a disclosure, that this is an estate sale that, you know, we're sort of at the mercy of getting all that paperwork. Um, and think about COVID. I mean, when the world just sort of stopped, and so did the courts, right? So things could take a lot longer. Ben, one question I have for you, and I know it used to be this way, um, and I don't know that a lot of people understood this, but as the personal representative, your fiduciary responsibility is to the estate. So your job is to get them the most amount of money with the best terms and conditions. And I was under the impression or thought that even if you were under agreement, up until like the day that you are closing, somebody could potentially come in with another offer. Let's just say it's $50,000 more than the one you're currently holding. Could that bump that first buyer out? That's a, a great question. It's actually the subject of a lawsuit that was decided by the Supreme Judicial Court. Uh, and. The, in that case, the personal representative tried to argue that because I got this higher offer, I'm authorized to breach or to terminate my contract with the first buyer and sell to the second buyer. And the court said, 
while you have a duty to get the highest price, that doesn't give you the right to terminate the contract with the first buyer. And so what that taught us, and one of the things that I always suggest when I have a client that's going to list it, is I want to make sure that we have language that says, if I do get a higher offer, I'll give you a uh, an opportunity to match it. And if you don't, I have the right to take that higher offer. Um, buyers don't like it, but when you explain to them, I could be in a situation where I'm going to get sued by you for not closing, and I could get sued by the people involved with my estate because I've breached my fiduciary duty by not maximizing the sale price. Buyers will generally understand, especially if you say we're not going to actively market it. We're going to have it contingent on MLS. We're not going to try and get backup offers. Um, This is just an out for us so that we're not in a situation where we could get sued for $50,000 because uh, we got this higher offer. And there's really not, it's a tough situation. There's no good option. Mm -hmm. And I mean, would you think that the buyers are hesitant to that? I mean, is that just, is that language that you're automatically putting into the purchase and sales agreement, which again, is this something that should be put into the offer? I mean, I think in Massachusetts where, and Michael, I'm not sure if you're aware, I mean, where we go offer to purchase and sales agreement, where a lot of states are, they go directly to purchase and sales agreement. But one, and maybe I'm a little bit over the top where I like to cross my T's and dot my I's and I probably ask way too many questions. A, of the a little? Office. A little? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really want to be protecting everybody because I honestly don't want that lawsuit turning around on me. And, and again, I do want to protect everybody, but I just think, I forget where I was going with that too, though. But, you know, just making sure that you're all... Yeah. You, you wanted to put it in the buyer's agreement or the purchase and sale, basically. Oh, yeah. 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 So do you put it in the offer to purchase then? You know, like yeah, where, absolutely. at what point are yep. you so specific? Yeah. So we, if um, I always encourage people. So I'll sometimes have a client who comes to me first. I'll open their probate and then um, I'll get kind of give them a little pep talk or uh, some pointers. When you go to list the property, call me before you accept any offers so that we can make sure we get all this information into the offer itself. Uh, because um, there's a case that's McCarthy v. Tobin, which essentially says the offer is the contract. Um, so if that essential term isn't included, the buyer could simply turn around when they go to sign the purchase and sale agreement and say, we didn't agree on that. You can't add that term to the contract. Um, so the offer is a critical stage uh, that we need to make sure that protection is built in there. But generally speaking, buyers will let you correct that issue. Uh, buyers understand that you would be in an untenable situation. Uh, They're comforted by the fact that you're going to represent that you're not going to actively market the property, Uh, but you certainly want to get as much as you can into the offer in terms of the right to uh, uh, basically match higher offers, uh, the fact that it's subject to uh, court approval, all these things we we like to see them in the offer if possible. Mm -hmm. Hey, Ben, uh the the uh, with the craziness and all the real estate uh, stupidity going on out there in the world the last year year and a half or two have have you guys kind of revised some of the ways you do things in contracts or or whatever just just because it's kind of crazy yeah so we've seen and so this is the other side of Styles Law so we do a lot of real estate I work on the estate planning team um, I manage that uh, area of practice. Uh, but I'm always involved with all the cases in the file because we're always meeting and talking about our cases. So uh, one of the things that we've seen is that because it was such a seller's market, we had to modify some of the terms of the standard agreement. Um, And some of the contingencies or some of the additional terms that were added 
for instance, waiving home inspections. Uh, that was something that was uh, very unusual before the last couple of years and became pretty routine uh, in the last couple of years. So uh, we did see a lot of these additional terms uh, that we hadn't seen before, uh, but we have to kind of roll with what the market conditions dictate. So if buyers are willing to waive these protections and sellers are demanding them because they have all the leverage in the market, um, uh, generally speaking, our, our language is going to follow kind of the sentiment between buyers and sellers. Yeah, I understand. A- any other examples of that, by the way? It, it just seemed like you'd have to make some changes. Actually, can I ask a question about that? Sure. Yeah, one of the things, too, is I'm wondering, Ben, are, from the real estate side of things, are is that department seeing contingency with the mortgage contingency because i know that there is a power you know there is a sentence in that paragraph that says you know something to do with the rates right at um conforming or something i don't have a document in front of me is there something that's being added now or considered that 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 phrase isn't going to be good enough that we have to say like maybe up to one percent increase in the rate or something like that uh, we haven't seen that yet, and I think the reason for that is, by practice, most people are locking their rates early. So it used to be the um, the loan officer or the broker would say, well, let's see where the market's going. It's 2.5%. Maybe it'll go to 2 and 3 eighths. Um, they're kind of playing that game. Generally, we're seeing buyers locking right away uh, because the concern is everything seems to be going up. Um, the, the area where we have some protection built in generally is – if the contract, if, um, let me start over. If the seller is unable to deliver clear title, so let's say there's a problem, and, and a good example would be they don't have court approval yet uh, for the sale from an estate. So that's a, an example of not having clear title. Um, the way that the contract works is that we can extend up to 30 days until that issue is resolved. Um, but we like to add a provision that says, or the day before our rate lock expires. And what that allows us is the buyer can say, all right, look, I'm going to have to back out because my interest rate is going up half a point, three quarters of a point. Uh, and that gives them the leverage to go to the seller and say, are you going to pay for a rate lock extension, which could be thousands of dollars. Um, so by having that built in there, it does give the buyer some protection against the market moving against them. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I had in regard to the verbiage that you were, you know, suggesting that we put in our offers to purchase, would a simple sentence, if something is forgotten, I mean, how how much protection does the words or the sentence that says um, contingent upon usually agreed upon purchase and sales agreement, how, how much leverage does that have to cover everything all encompassing? Yeah, it's tough because I think there's a couple reasons to say that's probably not enough. Um, the, the standard form purchase and sale agreement is pretty well defined, whether you're using the Greater Boston Legal Services form or the MAR form. Um, it's a pretty known document. And I think the courts interpret that mutually agreeable purchase and sale agreement as saying as long as it has the terms of the offer, so the, the closing date, the purchase price, uh, the mortgage contingency amount, that's kind of the bare-bones agreement. And as long as that's what the agreement says, then it is mutually agreeable. Um, so I would I would think that it's not really enough if you want a specific protection, uh, for instance, for court approval of uh, your license to sell. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you, Michael. I know we have, uh, let's see, we have just about six minutes left, and I didn't know if you had any other questions um, for Ben or Ben, if you have any final thoughts for our final minutes here. 
I don't have any questions. I've actually learned a couple things uh, from Ben today, so I'm uh, I'm happy. So take it away, Ben. <laughs> uh, sure. So there's one other thing that I uh, was, was prompted by our conversation about licenses to sell, and often we'll see an estate is opened, and then the family doesn't do anything with real estate for a couple of years, and that causes a unique issue because a license to sell can only be petitioned for up to a year after somebody's passed away. So um, one thing I encourage people to do is if they have an estate that's held property for a couple of years, um, talk to an attorney because there are other things that we might be able to do to make the sale process smoother. I'm not going to get into the weeds of exactly what that looks like, uh, but generally speaking, if a property's been sitting, just talk to an attorney first uh, because it can save a lot of heartache because you could get that buyer that now is saying, I have to close because of this rate lock and the process to actually sell becomes a bit longer. It might take a couple months to get everything resolved. Um, so that's the last thing I would just mention. Uh, and other than that, uh, being proactive is always better than reactive. Uh, the more we can plan, the more we can talk about things up front, generally the smoother it's gonna be. Mm-hmm. And Ben, what about one other thing that we were uh, briefly discussing earlier um, was reverse mortgages. And can you just hit upon that as well? Because I know that there was one time that I had a situation where we had the buyer client and the, the owners had to do, they did a reverse mortgage. In order to do that, the wife wasn't old enough and didn't qualify, so they took the wife off of the deed and then, so he could get the reverse mortgage. The mortgage was just in his name only. But then he passed away before they put her back on the deed. So, and then of course, one of the long lost, um, it was a second marriage, so one of the long-lost sons came out of the woodwork and contested everything. Would a trust protect from that aspect? Can you do a reverse mortgage in the trust? You may have already said this earlier, but I'm slow. You, you can. I think the problem that you'd run into is that the reverse mortgage guidelines require that you're a certain age. Uh, and so if they're a income or uh, even a full beneficiary of that trust, they might have the same issue. I think generally, and this is one thing that we try and do, is if you're planning to put the property back into somebody's name after a closing or after a a mortgage has been originated, uh, you want to have that deed signed right at the table um, so that if there ever is a situation where somebody passes away quickly, uh, we can make sure that um, it actually gets back to the right person. Um, So that's that's just the the way to guard against it um, so that you're not kind of sitting there with the title in one person's name where you can have those undesirable outcomes. Uh, ben, yes. I, had a, I had a quick question about uh, homes in, in a, a revocable uh, trust. Uh, they have difficulty uh, you know, getting mortgage from banks. I've had people today, they have to take their house out of the trust to get a mortgage or put it back in. Any, any comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. So mortgages in the United States are generally, um, they follow the Fannie Mae guidelines. Um, and so those guidelines are put out by the federal government, and they say, what are the what are the things that can be done in terms of um, uh, how can the trust be worded? And so as long as you're careful and as long as you make it clear that uh, the person that settled the trust is the trustee, they're also the beneficiary, um, generally speaking, it's Fannie Mae compliant, and you can get an, a mortgage in the name of the trust. Thank you. Well, guys, we have just about two minutes left here. So I want to make sure um, that we get everybody's information out there. Ben, I can't thank you enough. I know, Mike, um, you've 
been with we've been together here for three hours and i'm still your favorite sister-in-law you're still my favorite brother-in-law <laughs> <laughs> seems like only two uh, <laughs> I know. And I also want to thank Mark. Um, I know Mark is out on a ride right now. Um, I think it is. Has the pan mask thing, has that happened yet? Uh, I don't think that's happened yet. I think he's still, um, I, I think he's still training for it. Still training for it. Yeah. I have to make sure that I find the link so I can do a donation for him and his crew. Um, and I'll make sure to put that out there somewhere so everybody can donate to Mark Styles uh, ride because he does this every year, and I think it's such a great, worthy cause. Ben, how can everybody get in touch with you if they would like to set up a one-on-one consultation for all of their estate needs? Uh, sure. So they could call the office. Our number is seven eight one three one nine one nine zero zero. Again, that's seven eight one three one nine one nine zero zero. Or they can visit our website, which is styles-law.com. Ben, nice to Perfect. talk to you. Thank today. you. Nice to meet you. By the way, Ben, thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Have a and great weekend, Michael, guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. Michael, I'm going to have to set up a little uh, networking day for you and Ben to meet in person. So thank <laughs> you so much, Michael, for joining me and having me on your show today. Ditto. It's been fun. Talk to you soon. Uh, all right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks, Tim. W-A-T-T-F-M Marshfield. W-B-M-S Brock.